Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Austin Channing Brown. She's a writer and speaker, and she's here to share with us about her new book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. My guest today is Austin Channing Brown. She is a writer and a speaker, and she's the author of the new book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Austin, thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, thank you for having me. I first learned about you a couple years ago, thanks to the Liturgist podcast, uh, and then you kept popping up in my Twitter feed with retweets and uh, (laughs) decided to follow you, and I reached out last fall and said, I'd love to have you on the show, and you said, I'd love to do it, but I'm changing jobs, I'm moving, I'm having a baby, and I'm writing a book. (laughs) So uh, how have the last couple months been for you? Oh, intense. (laughs) I would just like to say I did do all those things. I did write the book. I did move and I did have a baby. So congratulations. Uh, the list has been has been crossed off. All things accomplished. Well, I am so glad that uh, we waited because I got a chance to read your book. And by the yeah. time this airs, it will be available for all of our audience to go check out. And, and oh, I encourage you to check it out. Um, and, and the shoe is sort of on the other foot. Um, I, as we record this, I'm now preparing to change jobs, move, and I have a two month old. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So maybe I should write a book too, just to kind of see what, (laughs) if I can stretch the limits. Um, but we like to begin, uh, by asking the guests to share a bit about themselves, uh, for the listeners that aren't aware of who you are. And uh, one of our previous guests, Brad Montague, picked up from, strangely enough, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Instead of asking the question, what do you do? She asked yeah. the question, what do you love about what you do? And so I'd love oh, for you to share a bit about yourself and then tell us what you love about what you do. Okay. Um, So as mentioned, I'm a new mom and new author and just moved, um, about a a year ago. Um, so everything still feels very, very new (laughs) right now. Um, previously I was a resident director, um, at a, um, Christian college. And so, um, now that I am just writing and taking care of just one kid as opposed <laughs> to 240, yeah. um, it's, <laughs> it's lots of big changes. Um, right now I'm doing a lot of speaking now that the book has actually been written, um, praise the Lord. And, um, I really love it. I actually, um, started preaching when I was about 14, 15 years old. Um, I really fell in love with church. I I started going to church when I was about 10 and just loved it so much. And by the time I was 15, I was a minister in our church. And at 19, I was ordained. Um, and so preaching, speaking, teaching has just been a part of my life for a really, really long time. Um, and then it was in college that I really started sort of focusing um, those efforts on the topic of racial justice in particular, um, and and really just being mentored by by other Christians like um, Brenda Salter McNeil and Ephraim Smith and um, folks who have been talking about racial justice and reconciliation, particularly in the church for easily twenty years. Mm. Um, and, and decided to take my own show on the road, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious what led you into the work of, 
racial reconciliation yeah. specifically because obviously you were aware of race before that and you tell plenty True. of stories from growing up and stories from high school. So what was it uh, that brought you into that field when you were in college? Yeah, well, I'm so glad you asked. So um, I went on a trip that our college sponsored every year and it's called Sankofa. And it's a trip where um, all the students get paired up, one black student and one white student traditionally. Um, that The diversity has since increased, but back then um, <laughs> that was pretty standard. Yeah. And, um, and you'd go down south to multiple cities, um, multiple museums and um, statues and um, just locations where black history is being taught and or celebrated. And you have a bunch of conversations about race and justice and black history um, for three days on a bus. Wow. And the first time I went was one uh, one intense experience. Um, so our first stop that year was at a plantation. Mm. And it was the most romanticized plantation yeah. ever. Um, so much so that I really thought the tour guides were joking. Like I thought they were being sarcastic <laughs> Yeah. and I kept waiting for someone to be like, okay, we're just kidding. <laughs> and, yeah. and it didn't happen, Dan, it didn't happen. <laughs> they just, they just kept going. So they asked questions, um, like, um, like I distinctly remember them talking about how happy the slaves were. Mm. And the evidence of that was that they sang, the slaves <laughs> sang while they were in the, in the field picking cotton. Yeah. And my friends were trying really hard to, to like, you know, challenge without being disrespectful. So one of my, one of my girlfriends, you know, raised her hand and she said, well, did the slaves ever, you know, hurt themselves while they were out picking cotton? And they were like, Oh no. Oh no. They were experts. They had it down. So they, <laughs> and it was like, Oh, oh my, my gosh. God, this is really happening. Yeah. And so we moved from that to the next stop, which was an exhibit of lynchings. Mm. And it was um, about four rooms, three or four rooms covered with photos um, of lynchings. And each photo had a little caption next to it that stated um, something like, um, this man was falsely accused of, um, of hurting a white woman or... Um, falsely accused of stealing a chicken or, you know, like just the most absurd things. Um, while you look at a a photo of, of someone who has um, been murdered and, um, it was so intense. It was so, so intense. And afterward, um, we all climbed back on our bus and this bus almost exploded with emotion. (laughs) It was so tension filled. And uh, the the peak um, happened when a black woman got up and said, you know, in the most calm voice ever, um, I think that white people are just innately evil. I think I think you can't help it. I think it's just who you are. You just rape and steal and kill. And and I think, you know, I I, I don't know. I've been upset about it anymore. I just think it. And then handed the microphone back to the person behind her and sat down. Wow. That's what we said. <laughs> we yeah. were like, oh, did that just happen? Yeah. I think that just happened. Okay, where do we go from here? 
as you can imagine, the white students were not pleased. No. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was like a ton of emotion on this bus and this trip. And then a white student got up just before we were about to break for lunch. And she said, you know, I, um, I didn't see all the pain on this bus. I, I can't fix it. Like I can't go back in time. I can't fix it. I can't heal, you know, everything she said, but, but what I can do is work to make sure that our, our, our kids don't have to experience, um, the same level of racism. She said, I, I've decided that doing nothing is no longer an option for me. Mm. And you could just feel like air rush back into the bus. <laughs> like what had been yeah. like all of us holding our breath, you know? And, and I realized in that moment that what she was saying was true for me too. Um, that just knowing about race just wasn't enough anymore that mm. I needed to go about the work of pursuing, um, racial justice and, and really truthfully has been doing it ever since. I, I love that. The, the ideas in that story. And that is a story in the book. And that leads me into this next question. Um, I asked folks about their philosophies and approaches to communication and, and you're welcome to answer that question. But I specifically mm-hmm. wanted to ask you about the book. It, a lot of the books that I have read on topics of race and racial reconciliation are either textbooks yeah. or they're like the new Jim Crow where they're full of anecdotes Ooh. and a lot of stats yeah. uh, yes. and things like that. But this is a narrative. This is a memoir. Why was it important for you to write this book as a story yeah. uh, as opposed to, to another form? You know, truthfully, um, I, I don't know how else I could have done this. Mm. I am not, um, an academic, right? So you think about the new Jim Crow right. and Michelle Alexander is an attorney. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be true to who I was as, as opposed to trying to pretend to be something that I'm not, um, in order to produce what honestly would probably be a subpar book. When I preach and teach, I work really hard to connect my story to the stories of others for that reason, because as much as I would love to be an expert on the criminal justice system or yeah. psychology or you know yeah. like anything, um, I'm just not, and 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 I can't pretend that I am. And so, um, and and then truthfully, I was really inspired by two books. Um, one um, between the world and me, yeah, which I just adored, um, and not just um, like the the content itself. Um, but I, I love the way that Coates writes, um, his writing itself is, was just so piercing. Yeah. If in in some ways it felt like listening to a sermon, (laughs) you know, like there was just not one extra word in, in that book. So I was really inspired by that. And then the other work I was really inspired by is for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough Mm. by Ntozaki Shange. Um, and I've never seen the play. It's a choreo play. Um, and I've never seen the play, but I read the essentially transcript or the book, um, almost once a year, um, because I just really resonate with her characters and the way that she describes their own emotion. And, and so I was trying really hard to, to kind of infuse these two things together, you know, um, 
the sort of the content of Coates, but the emotion of, of Ntozaki Shange. And Coates focuses a lot on like maleness, right? What is, is to be a black man in yeah. America, where Ntozaki Shange focuses on women. So I, so I was really trying to figure out like, what is the intersection here? And then add my faith, which is a, a huge part of, of my life. Well, and we will break down all of those parts. And that kind of naturally leads into another question I want to ask you. A little while back, uh, Brene Brown and Duray McKesson had a a public conversation. And um, I love both of their work. I started following Duray around the same time I started following you and Mm -hmm. have learned a ton from him. Um, But I noticed that some of the commentary, and I think you may have pointed it out as well. If not, you can say it wasn't me, uh, pointed out that while on that stage, there was a gay person and a straight person, a black person and a white person, a male yep. and a female, yep. it still didn't cover the full gamut of what that conversation needed to be about, in part because it was missing the black female voice. Yeah. In your mind, why is that voice so distinct and so important for all kinds of conversations, uh, not yeah. just around race? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I truthfully was not the first person to acknowledge it, but someone else in my, in my life, in my Twitter feed did. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed this. Um, but, um, funny enough to answer this question, the way she's, you know, she, she was talking about the optics and I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, what do you mean? And she wrote, I think she wrote back. Some of us are brave. And it, that's a reference to a book, um, that whose title I'm going to get just a slightly wrong. I'm sure. Yeah. But the title is something like, um, when all the blacks are men and all the women are white, mm. some of us are brave. And so her point is that so often when we talk about either gender, particularly women, um, we're talking about white women and we're talking about the experiences of white women. So we talk about, say, the wage gap, um, but we use the statistics for the difference between white women and white men as opposed to the difference between black women and white men Mm. or Asian women. Asian American women and white men or right. Like, like we're very, we focus on what white women are experiencing. And then on the other hand, oftentimes when we talk about blackness, we talk about the black male experience. Like I just mentioned coats. Mm -hmm. Those, both of those are worthy topics, right? Like we need to talk about women and we need to talk black folks, but oftentimes women, black women don't make it into either conversation. And so I, that's um, what they were really trying to point to is that there was still a fundamental experience that was going to be missed, even though there was a white woman and a black guy. Um, to be a black woman is to be is to have um, fundamentally different experiences from both of those two. That's great, and I think that's important for our audience to hear. Um, that it, it's obviously a largely a, a pastoral audience, uh, or right. folks who are interested in preaching. And, um, you know, one of the, the failings or shortcomings, even in the churches that think that they're doing well is, oh, well, I'll do a pulpit swap with somebody That's or right. we'll swap choirs or, yep. uh, we'll do a picnic together. And they might think, well, I'll bring in the black male preacher. And then you we've checked it. the the black box for this quarter or right. for this year or for this right. decade or whatever. Um, and you're still missing an important voice in the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think particularly Particularly, honestly, when we talk about justice, because not because talking about black women is more important as much as because black talking to black women is more nuanced. Mm. 
right? So you're talking about women and you're talking about blackness. And if you can, you know, find a black woman who's queer right now, you're talking about three intersections of, of oppressions um, and experiences and worldview and theology. And, and so, so I think what we're really asking for is the richness of our experience as well as the realities of the oppressions that we face. And when we don't go deeper and ask who's not at the table, who's not behind the pulpit, then we miss some important nuances. Mm, Absolutely. One of the things that caught me early on was uh, you talked about two different classroom experiences in high school, Uh, Mm -hmm. one in which a white teacher confesses her racism, but it was done in a way that actually made the class more difficult for you. And in Mm -hmm. another, a teacher that had the class read a poem about the black experience. And you write that the way that the teacher handled the lesson actually built trust between you and the teacher. Uh, And so as uh, our audience begins to think about how they might want to start difficult conversations or broach sensitive topics, what made those two experiences is different and and how can our listeners try to be more cognizant of how the way they approach things is important? Sure. Um, so one, I think it's really, really, really important for, um, white folks who are attempting to facilitate this conversation, um, want to be educated and focused. Mm. So sometimes what happens is you decide you're going to have a conversation about race, right? Like big topic, race. And then you end up talking about the criminal justice system, Mm. but you're not an expert on the criminal justice system. And so now (laughs) you're talking about, right, things that you know very little about, um, right? And so so in in two examples, um, what happened was in one class um, was an English class. And that teacher wove in all kinds of diversity um, into the curriculum. So poetry, um, memoirs, um, just it was a wonder. It was a fantastic class and um, was very important to him to add different voices. Right. So that even as our topics changed, um, we weren't still just talking about white men all the time. Yeah. And he could do that because he was an English teacher. Right. So he knew right, exactly. about Maya Angelou and he knew about Paul Lawrence Dunbar and he knew, right. Like he was still in his field of expertise because he had taught himself right about English. He just stepped outside the box of white men. Um, and so when it came time to talk about, uh, let's say Paul, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, we wear the mask. Um, he did it so well because he was still in his element. Yeah. Um, and he really challenged, um, all the other students to treat that poem with the same, um, the same dignity, the same depth as he would anything else. So he asked about, um, he asked about the stanzas. He asked about the language. He asked about the meaning. He, you know, he just really asked white students to dig into this poem. And as simple as that is, I don't think I had ever experienced that before where something that a black person created was lifted up Mm. and, 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 and asked white students to explore this. Um, but then there was a religion class where we were talking about our end of the year plans and we got into a discussion of affirmative action and our teacher was not an expert in affirmative action. (laughs) 
Yeah. So when a white student started talking about how she did not get the place that she wanted to be at U of M mm. and she was pretty sure it was because of affirmative action and black folks, just this and that and the other, he was not prepared for that. Yeah. He was yeah. Not prepared for that conversation. Um, and it didn't end well. I don't remember all the details, but you're making me think of all the pastors that that selectively <laughs> quote Martin Luther King Jr. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you have not read the whole sermon or the whole book, maybe don't. Yeah. Maybe don't. Um edu- educating oneself is is really 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 important um, to this conversation because when you don't um it it tr- um when you don't and you find yourself in a group with multiple perspectives, you are unable to separate fact from myth. Mm. And in an effort to treat everyone equally, all their opinions are treated equally. Right. And that can be destructive to the conversation because now you can't separate out what you want people to learn, right? Yeah. <laughs> the facts that you want people to learn versus um, everyone's opinion matters here. And and that can be very dangerous, one, for people of color who do know the difference between the opinion and the fact. Right. Um, and, and, and it makes people of color then um, seem aggressive because we're like, no, you can't say that. Like, you have to stop saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? But now that feels disrespectful because we're supposed to be honoring everybody, right? right? So that's one thing. And then the other problem that it creates is that white folks are teaching each other about the myth, right? So now you're also perpetuating ideas that are not helpful um, and in some cases are untrue. Right. So educating oneself is super important or bringing in someone um, who is educated on the topic. Well, and that actually makes me jump back to what what the the event that spurred me to reach out to you to be on the program, there was a seminary who had uh, someone on like the preaching faculty retiring. And so they took a group photo, but they oh, took it Lord. in, in, you know, stereotypical gangster yes. gear. They yes. had a handgun in it. They, as it should have been, were called out for this insensitive and offensive photo. Yep. And their plan was to invite Lecrae to come <laughs> speak to them. That's right. And so probably in their minds, they're thinking, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm giving them a very charitable benefit of the doubt. <laughs> right. We screwed up. Let's yep. invite someone who's called us out who might yep. know what they're talking about to educate us. Right. But Lecrae's answer was, no, I'm not coming anywhere near That's right. this campus because this conversation will be of no help. That's so right. So for the listeners, uh, and even, you know, I will admit there are times where I where I um, don't understand why folks may turn down the opportunity to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Can, can you help us understand maybe what the seminary was missing other than the fact that they probably should just go find some books and lectures <laughs> and there are plenty of there. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you speak on resources. this. Yes. Um, so it's hard. It's hard to to. um to believe that we are planting a seed that will produce fruit on ground that has not been tilled. Mm. Um, so let me give, let me give you a, a different example. So that's sure. like, mm, maybe don't do it this way, yeah. but let me give you like a, a, a really positive example. 
So I went to this conference, um, that has traditionally been white. The conference has probably been going on for at least five years is my guess. And almost all the attendees are white. All the speakers were white. And, um, the conference planner, um, had a change of heart because of all the things that happened around black lives matter. And her eyes were just really, really opened, And she wanted to make some changes in the conference. And, um, the first thing she did was she got on the phone with me and she said, she confessed and said, Austin, let's, here's the real deal. Like, here's what the conference has been. Here's how I have like been completely ignorant of mm. all the racial justice things. Here's the work that I've been doing. And here's what I have planned for the conference. And it was really helpful for me to hear the background mm -hmm. of, of what she had done, what she was trying to do. Um, it really gave me confidence in saying yes to her, even though I knew I was going before a crowd for whom what I was saying was going to be new. Yeah. And then she surprised me again when we arrived at the conference. She was the first speaker doing the like introduction and welcome. And she repeated for that entire audience what her journey has been, why she was so impacted by Black Lives Matter, how she had been educating herself, and why diversifying the conference was so important to her. And then she sort of like invited, she ended by, by inviting all the folks who were there to really listen to the people of color that she had invited um, to be speakers. And I think it is quite possibly the first time that I had a conference planner do the hard work of tilling the ground. Mm. And I tell you the truth, I actually changed my sermon after hearing her because I walked into that room expecting to have to do what she did, which is convince everybody in the room to care about it. Yeah. Because she had already convinced everybody in the room to care about it. I gave up. My sermon was 10 times better. <laughs> Because I was doing what I do, which is like the inspiring and painting pictures and, and, and I didn't have to convince them that they should care. Mm. And I think that's often what is missing that the pastor has an aha moment, but they don't teach the congregation about the aha moment. Right. And they're afraid to talk about Black Lives Matter or the criminal justice system or, or whatever, because it's all political at some point. Right. Right. And so instead what they do is get on Twitter and say, Hey, Lecrae, don't you want to come talk about this? <laughs> and Lecrae is like, no, I really do not. Yeah. <laughs> but I think those are two, right. So those are two very different ex examples. One is out of genuine growth, out of genuine work, um, out of, um, a genuine invitation for everyone to come along. And the other is really just trying to cover up the problem. Yeah. And I think too, there's, well, not too, I mean, just, just we've, we've mentioned Twitter many times throughout, and this is yeah. one of the ways that I got familiar with your work and Twitter can seem like an easy place to make these connections because yeah. you can reach almost anybody. In fact, the, the vast majority of the guests I've had on this program, they're either colleagues of mine from my conference of the United Methodist Church or uh -huh. the, or their people I've met through Twitter. Um, and it is yeah. truly amazing who will write you back on Twitter. Uh, right. It, it kind of blows your mind the, the amount of access that you have. <laughs> it's true. But with that access has to come the respect that if someone That's doesn't right. want to answer your question, 
That's right. That is an answer to your question, I guess. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And before the question is asked, it would behoove one to perhaps use Google. Sure. First, um, or to perhaps um, look for book suggestions first. Or I think that I think that oftentimes white folks um, want to bypass um, the hard work of educating mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much easier to just hop on Twitter and be like, hey, I have a question. Can you answer this question for me? Um, And I think what white folks don't always stop and realize is that I wasn't born with the knowledge that I have about racial justice and black history. My bookshelves are filled with books trying to unpack and understand how we got here. Um, I've spent, you know what, I should actually count how many dollars I've spent just on (laughs) racial justice. You know what I mean? Like the amount of money that I've spent, I have a degree in social justice. Like I've worked really hard to understand and to be able to unpack, um, and to be able to deliver a great sermon from a place of knowledge. Right. And it is sometimes really offensive for a white person to be like, you know, I don't understand this. Can you explain it? Yeah. I'm like, do you know how many books I have read on this? Like here's here's a list of books that you can go read too. Well, and I've heard with all kinds of writers, artists, comedians, uh, even preachers, the more yeah. natural and easy it seems, yeah. the more work they've put into it that you don't see. That's um, right. And I think that's one of the the great things about your book is that uh, it reads so beautifully and so well, and it seems like you're just telling stories from your life. But you have, it's sort of like the Gospels. At the end of one of the Gospels, they're like, and there were a thousand other stories about Jesus we couldn't fit in here. Like, this isn't this isn't the entirety of Austin Channing That's Brown's right. experience with race. You had That's to right. curate a set of stories. You had to That's weave right. them in an order that communicated the point you, yeah. you wanted to make. You had to order the chapters in a way that made sense. That's that, right. And so... All of that. So it may just be like, oh, well, Austin loves talking about herself. She wrote a memoir, you know, so I'll just ask her to tell me a little more. It's like, no, like she this is this is this is like someone asking you, you know, to to give your sermon in a tweet. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and the truth is, I don't tell the most um, traumatic stories. Yeah. Right. Like, like I love your word curating. Like that's exactly what I did because I was trying to get to the, the most common (laughs) right things that a whole lot of people of color are experiencing and that a whole lot of white folks are doing because I think too often we focus on the traumatic, right. right? And then it lets us off the hook because we're like, well, if we're not, we're not doing that. (laughs) It's like, well, let's talk about what, what is happening. Um, and so I really appreciate that you would say that. Um, and yeah, that there's, that's not, this memoir isn't the entirety of my story, but it, but it is still my story. And so for folks to be like, well, can you just give me like the bite-sized version? I'm like, well, I did like yeah, you spend did. <laughs> a year writing a book. <laughs> Could you please read the book? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that reminds me of, um, it, even something that Brene Brown talks about that vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and so how do you, whether you're preaching a message or writing this book, what kind of factors come in to you deciding what stories 
you're going to make available to this group and whatnot? Like, do you think about oh, the yeah. size of the room? Do you think about whether it's being recorded or not? Do you, <laughs> like, what? How do you how do you make those decisions? Yeah, you can probably tell by my laughter whether I was being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely one. Um, so at a core level, like to stay on the like Brene Brown train, I definitely don't preach anything out of bitterness. Like if I'm still mm. bitter about something that happened, that's not going in the sermon um, or in the book. Um, Cause I am a human being who yeah. is still learning to practice forgiveness and who needs healing like everyone else. Um, and so if it's something that I still have very strong, <laughs> like, like, um, like if I think about it and then I start re-rehearsing it and what I wish I would have said and what I wish I would, that's mm-hmm. a bad, 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 bad. <laughs> nope. Not going to do it. Yeah. And we've all heard sermons that had that in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I try to stick to stories that are no longer emotional for me. Um, but I try to unpack what it feels like to go through it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I am not emotional about it anymore, but I try to revert. Um, yeah. I try to express what the emotion felt like then, um, which sometimes uh, folks then think that you're still emotional about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. no, really I'm good. Like I don't need any hugs. Like I'm, I'm so good now. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other is I really try hard to think about um, the purpose for which I'm telling the story and the, um, the oh, how do I say this? The um, development um, of the congregation, right? So, so yeah. like we talked about, there's some congregations who have never talked about racial justice before. Um, and then there are congregations who have been doing it for 10 years, right? Right. So I try really hard to adjust what I'm saying based on where folks are on their journey. Um, so not everybody gets the same sermon. And I tell you, that actually does sometimes make me nervous when things are being recorded. Yeah. Because of Twitter. Right. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I, I, I go and I talk to college students who don't have a choice, you know, who are at the, the chapel service that they are required to go to. Right. And I don't sound like my Twitter feed. And that's on purpose because people on my Twitter feed are following me because <laughs> they like the way that I talk about racial justice, right? But the college students who have to show up to the chapel service, they are not following me on purpose. And so they get a different sermon, right? Yeah. Um, but sometimes I do wonder, like, what will happen when it sounds like I'm no longer being myself, mm. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and hope that, you know, other preachers will just understand what I'm doing. <laughs> well, and I mean, obviously it's, it's uh, exponentially more sensitive when you talk about a hot topic, but even just, yeah. you know, so many sermons now are recorded and podcasted for, for the ease of, of the congregation at the time. Another writer I follow on Twitter said, like, if you feel led to write a book, write a book. And if you believe something different five years later, that's okay. That book is a goalpost or, you know, it's like a, mm, it's a point in that. time, you know, you, and, and sometimes we change and we grow and, and that's right. um, I'm curious, Austin, where as someone, you know, I'm interviewing you in part because I view you as an expert, but I know that you have growing edges and to yeah. the level that you're comfortable sharing, where are sure. some of your growing edges? You know what I'm working on right now? So I'll tell you another story. So I was teaching this class and um, the class was on on race. And I I had this adorable um, teenage boy, white teenage boy who was in the class for the first time. And he was with me 
And he <laughs> raised his hand at one point in the class and he said, Austin, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but I think I'm really glad that I'm a white guy mm. because, because I can't imagine what it's like to be a black person or to be a black woman. And I was like, oh my God, you're so adorable. <laughs> that, that's how you would phrase that. <laughs> yeah. But it made me pause and think, wait a second. He has only heard about the trauma. He has not heard about how much I love being a black girl. He mm. does not realize that I would never choose to be him because I love, love, love being a black girl. And ever since that moment, I have tried, I'm sure sometimes failed, but tried really hard to not just talk about white folks and to not just talk about the indignities, but to talk about how much I love blackness yeah, and how much other folks should too. And I'm still figuring out how to do that well. Um, and I'm still, and, and doing that still has a lot of challenges. So uh, particularly in a church context um, where I'm maybe not supposed to like hip hop or um, must be critical of hip hop. If I, even if I do still love it right. or right, like it gets tricky when you're yeah. talking about yeah. black culture or anyone's culture um, and trying to celebrate and hold on to faith elements. And like, it, it gets tricky real fast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the space that I'm in right now is how do I do a better job of not just talking about whiteness, um, but also talking about how much I love blackness. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, we have a set of questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one is what is one of your favorite or most challenging projects? Oh, writing the book has definitely <laughs> been, um, because I was pregnant when I was writing the book and, and working a full-time job with 240 students um, who were 18 and 19 year olds. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's hard when you're like trying to write a sentence and you're nauseous and you just discovered that one of your students has a dead squirrel in her freezer in her room, <laughs> oh my gosh. you know, like, <laughs> it's just like, huh, well, okay. <laughs> and yes. like not for class, right? <laughs> not for class. No, no, because she wanted to bury the squirrel later on uh. somewhere where it would be honored. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Oh, I love college students. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in campus ministry for a decade and um I love them there's all so this, much. The first person that puts Dawn in the dishwasher rather than, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And you end up with a kitchen been full there. of bubbles. Yep. Yep. Been there. Sure. <laughs> uh, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non preacher mm. communicators in your life and why? Yeah, Brenda Salter McNeil is is my mentor and has been um since I was in college. And good Lord, if I could ever preach like her, I would die a happy woman. A mm. um, couple other women, Michelle Guidry, Christina Cleveland, um, Lisa Sharon Harper. There are so many black women who can preach. Tracy Blackman. Ooh, Lord have mercy. Um, Renita Weems. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of black women who are out here preaching their faces off. Um, one other, what that I, two that I really admire that if I could ever take a class with them, I would just move to Chicago and figure out how to do it. Um, Jeremiah Wright and Otis Moss, the third, right. Yeah. Ooh, Lord have mercy. Can those two men preach? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan. TD Jakes. Good gracious. Where did he get that gift from? (laughs) It's just not even right. I don't even understand. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I need to pick at least one white person. Um, Judy Peterson, um, who was slash is the chaplain at North Park university. That woman can preach a doggone sermon. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of folks who can preach their faces off. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what books, podcasts, or other resources might you recommend our audience check out? Um, we mentioned one, The New Jim Crow. Um, that book changed a lot for me. Um, and it, if you read my book, I talk a, a, lot, a lot about um, a cousin of mine who passed away Um and was in and out of the criminal justice system a lot. And her book really helped me um, understand what that life was like for him. Um, so I highly, highly recommend that book. I don't know. I feel weird saying some of these. Um, Two Dope Queens is an amazing podcast. Yeah, yeah. But if your ears are sensitive, maybe don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? um, I love Another Round. Um I love, oh, you know, it's a really good one. Um, Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time ever. Yeah. I love that podcast. Um, I especially love their like black people's homework. (laughs) Where they, every now and again, they'll get so so into their conversation about black culture um, that they'll like mention a movie or a book. Um, and they'll say, now, if you haven't seen this, this is black people's homework. Yeah. Like you need, you have to go watch this immediately. That's cool. um, It's just so cute and so funny. Yeah. Uh, if folks want to get in touch and say hi or follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Twitter. I heart Twitter so much as y'all have probably noticed based on this conversation. Um, I'm at Austin Channing and then same for Instagram. Um, and then on Facebook, I'm Austin Channing Brown. So it's my full name on Facebook. Awesome. The book is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. By the time this episode is out, it will be available. I encourage you all to check it out, uh, read it, download it, uh, get it from the library, ask your library to carry it. Uh, Austin, are you going to do an audiobook version for us? Yeah. Yep. Yep. It should release the same time as the, the printed book. It's already done. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Austin, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually a fan of this show, so it was a pleasure to be on. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.